Hello, and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Joey. Usually in Affable Chat, we dive as deep as possible into a movie of our choosing, and today is not an exception. Today, I've brought a very special guest. Uh, he is probably been cast as an extra in the next Wes Anderson movie, Elias Stokes. Say hello, Eli. Hello. Hey, so happy to be here. Uh, Eli, of course, is one half of the Super Bracket Bros, um, and a frequent cl- frequent collaborator with Affable Chat. Super happy that Eli's here because he is a huge Wes Anderson film fan, and we are here to talk about the newest one, Asteroid City. Yeah, I, I'm concerned. I, even though it's just the two of us, Joey, we might be stretching our runtime because <laughs> Zencaster has a two-hour limit. So I told B, <laughs> so it's a tall task, but I think we could do it. I think we could do it. But no, no, okay, no. Okay. When you when you messaged me about talking about Asteroid City, I, I immediately jumped on it. Wes Anderson's my favorite director. Uh, as much as I love watching his movies, I also love thinking about them and talking about them. So we we're gonna have plenty to talk about. Excellent. So let's get started with our intro quote. What do those pulses indicate? What? Oh, the beeps and blips? We don't know. Some of our information about outer space may no longer be completely accurate. Anyway, there's still only nine planets in the solar system as far as we know, Billy. Except now there's an alien. What's happening now? I don't know. I don't like the way that guy looked at us. The alien. How did he, how did he look? Like we're doomed. Maybe we are. Freight train, freight train. Going so fast. This is a meta science fiction family drama comedic screenplay adaptation. The director is, of course, Wes Anderson. The cast includes all of your Wes Anderson staples. Max Fisher, Nutmeg, Roebuck Wright, Social Services, Chief the Dog, Scoutmaster Board, Field Mouse, a talk show host, a drill sergeant, Klaus Daimler, Zero, Lionel, and Deputy Kovacs. And there are some newcomers as well. Hom Thanks, Robin Buckley, Michael Scott, and Officer Ryan from Crash, and Harley Quinn. But, notably, Garfield is not in this movie. Bill Murray does not make an appearance <laughs> officially in this one. I watched this movie in a regal theater. Uh, Eli, how did you watch Asteroid City? I watched it in a Marcus theater. Oh, excellent. A regional chain. <laughs> um, okay, let's get started uh, with our recap of this movie that I've written for us, and uh, we will quickly go through, um, starting now. Conrad Earp is a well-regarded American playwright. He is currently working on a play called Asteroid City. The play is set in the tiny fictional town, Asteroid City, and centers around the Junior Stargazers convention. Throughout the movie, we cut between the play itself rendered in widescreen and dazzling color and the drama behind the scenes, which is shown in full screen in black and white. Our main player is Augie Steenbeck, a war photographer. He is traveling with his four children, his three daughters, and his young genius son, Woodrow. Woodrow is attending the Junior Stargazers convention, but on their way to Asteroid City, their car breaks down, and Augie is forced to call the father-in-law of his recently deceased wife. After his conversation, Augie tells his children that their mother is dead and her ashes are in a Tupperware container. Only Woodrow seems to grasp the tragedy. All the other junior stargazers and their families arrive in Asteroid City, including Dinah Campbell, daughter of the famous actress Midge Campbell. Dinah and Woodrow immediately begin flirting with each other, and their parents do the same. Also in attendance is the accomplished astronomer Dr. Hickenlooper, a busload of religious school children, a musical cowboy band, and a representative of the U.S. military, General Griff Gibson. Gibson is the host of the event. 
The convention begins with awards given to the five junior stargazers for their incredible inventions. These include a jetpack, a ray gun, a new botany technique, and Woodrow's device that projects an image on the moon. Later, everyone gathers in Asteroid City's crater to witness a rare celestial event. Certain planets and stars align to form ellipses. Everyone has to wear special cardboard helmets to safely witness it. But instead of the comforting three dots, a fourth dot appears, and it grows and grows until everyone can see its detail. It is an alien spacecraft. The bottom opens up and a lanky alien steps out. He telescopes to the ground, grabs Asteroid City's asteroid, poses for a picture from Augie, and then retreats to his craft. No one speaks or moves. They are all so shocked. The next day, the military descends on Asteroid City and places the town in strict quarantine. No one is allowed to leave or contact the outside world. Augie and Midge begin discussing their lives intimately. Augie shows Midge his pictures, and Midge practices her lines with Augie. The junior stargazers become close-knit. They are smarter and stranger than other children and find solace in each other. Together, they conspire to defy the quarantine and leak the news of first contact to the press. After a sneaky call to one junior stargazer's school paper, the media and the rest of the circus comes to Asteroid City. General Gibson is furious, but the junior stargazers remain resolute. The quarantine continues for one week. At the end of the week, the alien returns the asteroid. Chaos breaks out as everyone tries to get out of town. As our characters become isolated from the world, the lines between the play and the real world begin to blur. The actor who plays Augie approaches the director, Schubert Green, and asks him what the point of it all is. Green assures him that it doesn't matter, even if he doesn't get it. The actor then finds the actress that was cast to play his late wife, but whose part was cut because of runtime. She recites the line from her part, which was meant to be a dream sequence. The host of the production announced that Conrad Earp, the playwright, was killed in a car crash. The cast recites the line, You can't wake up if you don't fall asleep, with increasing volume and intensity. Augie wakes up the next day to find everyone has left. The family buries their mother's Tupperware ashes and heads to the next part of their lives. The end? (laughs) (laughs) Alright, that's the events of uh, Asteroid City synthesized for your enjoyment. Now we will move to our pros and cons. Eli, what did you like about Asteroid City? It's a Wes Anderson movie, so, you know, when you go... What's not to (laughs) like? No, no, so... uh, you know, anytime you go into a Wes Anderson movie, you're going to see some pretty visuals. And this is one of his most aesthetically pleasing movies to date. The The color palette he select for uh, the color palette he selected for these, this American Southwest setting is just so beautiful. There's cloudless blue skies. The sand is just this bright orange. This is just pro- like, honestly, up. I think it's on par with Grand Budapest Hotel in terms of just visual pleasantries. Just, just it's just fun to watch. Uh, just the colors melt together, and that's contrasting the black and white with the with the sort of frame narrative of the actors performing the play. It's this beautiful complementary that's just that's just incredible. So yeah, you, you know, uh, credit his his longtime cinematographer Robert Yeoman. They 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 are a match made in heaven, and they nail it out of the park with every film. Uh, but also when you go into a Wes Anderson movie, you're expecting, you know, jokes. And this is some of the funniest bits in any Wes Anderson movie. I was rolling. <laughs> like, there were amazing jokes that just, like, 
that just hit me that I wasn't expecting. Uh, because of the frame narrative, they get to do some fourth wall breaking humor. And there's a scene with Brian Cranston that just sent me. <laughs> I just, <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, it's, the jokes in this is incredible, and also just like the, the not just the big you know heavy hitters, but sort of the little the little you know uh, ironic you know turns of phrases and things that if you're paying attention you'll get, get some hearty chuckles and and whatnot. Uh, yeah, people in my theater were laughing the whole time, which was pleasant, actually. Uh, especially just, like, the visual gags, right? Where they showed, like, the, the uh, at the very beginning, they showed the train with all of the produce that it's carrying. Yeah. And it's also carrying a nuclear weapon. Yeah. And it's, like, do, like, it has, like, this warning on it. It's, like, do not, like, be careful. Like, it's a nuclear weapon. Yeah, and there's, uh, like, and then there's, uh, and then, avocados in the next card. Exactly. <laughs> and, and it's, like, it's great because I love jokes that aren't telegraphed. It kind of takes you a second to, like you have a sense something's going on and when you yeah yeah like this is this is not right yeah <laughs> these things do not go together yeah. <laughs> but no some yes yeah, very funny uh it, it you know with with the with the visuals and the humor you know that's what wes anderson's known for and he just seems to be getting better and better with each film so yeah uh, you know it's it's expected but i uh, it still surprises me how how much he improves upon with each each entry in his filmography um, but also, I want to talk about this. is a pretty ambitious movie in terms of storytelling and themes. Uh, I was telling Joey before we started recording. I was hoping and kind of excited for when I saw the trailers. I was like, "Hey, this is going to be a a straightforward, fun little story." After the French Dispatch, which was a lot more experimental, I'm ready for something simpler. And nope, the first scene pops up, and it's just like, <laughs> "Oh, we're in for some wacky meta shenanigans." Uh, <laughs> it was so fascinating the way he explored the themes using the frame narrative. What, you know, Asteroid City, like I said, if you see the trailers, you think oh, it's going to be a simple story, but it's actually maybe his most complicated. Um, and that's including the French Dispatch, which was kind of an experimental. Uh, it's more of an anthology, um, uh, French Dispatch. Yeah. yeah. So I, 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 th- I commend Wes Anderson to like to just keep reinventing himself. He, he's, he's accrued sort of this you know, perception that he's style over substance, but really he's always just reinventing himself. You know, the style is the vehicle that he uses to explore interesting ideas. And Asteroid City is just another example of that. Um, and that's one of my last, uh, the last thing I'll say about it is despite this meta narrative, it still feels like Anderson's most personal movie. Like it, a lot of the themes um, with this frame narrative we talked about, it's, it's like, you know, there's two stories going on. There's the people performing the the movie and then the movie itself. And, you know, the characters are often questioning what is the purpose of the play. And you get a sense that Anderson's sort of asking himself, why is he doing this? What is the purpose of this story? And so it, it, it's pro- maybe his most introspective uh, film to date, which I really loved. As someone who's been following his career for so long, it's it's amazing to witness that. Yeah, it almost feels like he's making it for himself, which is really interesting. Um, I, I think it's probably my favorite part of this movie. Um, for me... I mean, the visuals are, of course, stunning. Uh, nobody else can match what he does here. Uh, not even in a different way, right? He's got this, like, I described it as Fisher-Price style. <laughs> you know, it's, like, <laughs> it's like, like, like Lego building blocks kind of thing. And it's very, you know, but it's, it's like, his, his color palette is very distinct. But even, uh, like, other movies that also have distinct color palettes don't come close to matching the level of detail and care and craft that comes into these movies. So, uh it's just wonderful seeing something so colorful, whimsical, and overflowing with detail, which is all things we've come to expect. I think Asteroid City, the setting is so cute. 
I love every aspect of it. I love the the diner that has the entire menu written um, on the outside, <laughs> and it has even more detailed menu on the inside. <laughs> I love the bridge that's unfinished. It was like a mis- it was some sort of bureaucratic mistake <laughs> yeah. where they were supposed to build a bridge and they realized it wasn't going anywhere. Um, yeah, it, all this, all the little tiny things in there are so amazing. I, I think it's great. I think the framing device is, is being woven into the story is something I enjoyed. Uh, Grand Budapest Hotel has two framing devices stacked on top of each other. Um, this one is like actually part of the story, and um, I, I think I like that more. Uh, the characters are interesting and distinct. I liked all of them, uh, there were, even if they had some notable flaws. Um, I thought the acting from everyone was really strange, but wasn't immersion breaking maybe that is due to the um the framing device um and yeah it really made me it really forced me to consider what this movie was about it didn't really leave me with a solid answer and um that was something i was kind of expecting from wes anderson so having that kind of vagary i think um was interesting and i also really liked the alien i think he was awesome we should uh (laughs) distinct alien design you know we should be we should be uh, uh making a we were making our little list of uh, best aliens in movies. I think we should consider Wes Anderson's uh, lanky uh, black it's alien so... played by Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> it's so <laughs> striking, and as as you would, it's exactly as you'd imagine Jeff Goldblum playing an alien in a Wes Anderson movie would look like. I don't know what that means for you, but you know, that's, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, yeah. Okay, so that's uh, that stuff we liked. Well, let's move on to the stuff we didn't like. Uh, our cons. Uh, Eli, what did you what did you not like about Asteroid City? So, I'm, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go back a little bit. Even though I was praising the meta narrative, I'm also kind of like criticizing it because at times it got a little too meta for me, a little too experimental. At like towards like the somewhere in like the the end of the second act, beginning of the third act, that it just got so wild. I lost track of the characters and plot. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> and, and and it's fun. Like after. It's fun to think about, you know, after the movie, but actually sitting in the movie, it's just like, please, like, you know, grab the reins and, like, redirect me. I I have no idea what's going on. Uh, Yeah, I would have liked, again, a bit more straightforward because with the with the you mentioned the Grand Budapest Hotel, that's another frame narrative, but that was much more structured and simpler to follow, even though it jumped, uh, jumped frames and timelines, you still had a great a good idea what was going on whereas well you don't have to keep it in mind right it you you, you forget about it unless you're doing a podcast yeah it. <laughs> because it, it, it comes in at the beginning and then it comes in at the end you're like oh yeah i remember that was doing that but they never they never seem to break it other than that um i don't remember i don't even remember if there was an intermission where they cut back to the conversation that they're having in the lobby or not i think it's all just um it's all just stacked on top of each other very neatly yeah um which is interesting right it seems like what's so interesting about watching a director like throughout his career is seeing how different things continue to stay stick around and how they develop into new things um which feels like it feels like a progression from grand Budapest hotel to french dispatch to this one um having that frame framing device be such a big part of the story yeah i like what you said with the grand Budapest hotel being stacked neatly asteroid city's meta narrative is a bit more like nebulous like they kind of yeah. just like jump you know kind of not even jump it's almost like morphing into the you know frame narrative and then back to the main narrative and it was just a little it didn't work every time you know for me so sure. that that was a bit distracting and one of one of the the casualties i think of this like frame narrative jumping is 
I really wish we had more time with the actor characters in the in the frame because we got mm-hmm. a good sense of the characters in the asteroid city. You know, the, the it's so weird to say. Okay, so they were <laughs> the <laughs> there's so many levels. I know, I know. Like, <laughs> like the the asteroid city story characters were interesting, and we got glimpses of the actor characters playing the asteroid city characters, but we didn't. I didn't feel as close to them as I think I should have. Like with Grand Budapest Hotel, we had the Jude Law character and the F. Murray Abraham character, and they themselves were interesting. And I was like, fond, not just because they were, you know, older versions of the people we were following in the main story, but they were interesting of them themselves. The actor characters, they feel more like, they feel more like dolls almost that are like. Mm being played around with instead of actual characters. I would have liked to know more about Conrad Earp. I would have liked to know more about uh, Willem Dafoe's acting character or Adrian Brody's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Don't you want to take an acting class from Willem Dafoe? <laughs> <laughs> Somehow he looks more haggard in this movie than in the lighthouse. I don't know how he does it, but uh, yeah, no, I just, I, yeah, I just wish we had more with the actor characters because I think there was a lot more room in that but it just felt like they were different versions of the asteroid city actors it's a weird you know meta discussion but i was left wanting more from from the black Mm. and white frame narrative that makes sense um i i i generally agree with you i I think that there's a lot to look at there's a lot of things to pay attention to to keep you engaged but the story is really slow um i don't think the movie was really intended purely as an escape it feels like it's trying to say something about today especially since quarantine plays a major role in the plot um but its message really gets muddled in the delivery and the strange setting and the strange acting makes it feel like it's something else something alien which is also something that wes anderson has been criticized for is the like how um maybe not wooden but like unemotive his actors are um and this movie is even more it feels like an even more extreme version of that um, so it, it, it starts to feel like it's losing its grasp on, uh, like real base reality, like the movie, the reality we live in, <laughs> uh, which is like, cause it's so, f- it's moving itself and pushing itself so far into this like movie within a movie within a movie. Um, so <laughs> it's yeah. almost like a Wes Anderson singularity. Like <laughs> it, it gets a little, it gets a little dense. I agree. Um, okay. So let's move on to our overall section and talk about this movie in much more detail. Um, what did this movie mean to you, Eli? I, we mentioned it briefly, but I still think this is his most personal movie. I think the time in quarantine uh, during the pandemic made him more introspective. And I think this... Which is when this movie was filmed, too, right? It started in 2020. Yep. Uh, um, and Bill Murray caught COVID, which is why he's not in the movie. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's where I think, because this is his 11th movie. Um, you yeah. know, if you want to be a purist, it's, you could say it's his 10th, because Bottle Rocket was sort of his... Uh, his test, you know, of, of his style. Uh, so, you know, he's in that double digits range. And yeah, I think this is him exploring inwardly um, in as a, as not just a, as a creative, as a, as a director, um, because he, like there's a scene, um, it's my favorite scene in the movie. My favorite line in the movie is uh, the character, Jason Schwartzman, who's playing Augie, he breaks character and leaves the, in the middle of the play during like the climax and goes up to the director and he's just like, I still don't know what this play is about. Like, and the director says, that's okay. Like, keep going. You're doing great. To me, that's like a message Wes Anderson's telling himself because we, we, we have this imagine like we imagine Wes Anderson as probably this perfectionist. He knows what he's doing all the time. But I 
you know, we don't know him, you know, like this line, I think is him telling himself, like, I don't know why everyone thinks like I'm, I'm this savant or auteur, or he probably has imposter syndrome like everyone else. And this is him telling himself, it's okay. Like you're doing great. Like just keep doing what you're doing. To me, that's where the personal uh, themes feel most resonant is just, you know, when the character, the, the characters and the player are just like, what is going on? And it's just like, it's okay. Just, just keep going. It's fine. <laughs> that, that, that to me, again, that, that's why I keep saying it's his most personal movie. It's his most introspective movie. Uh, and it's also compounded by the fact people have brought this up, but so many of his movies take place in different locations. This takes place yeah. roughly around the place he grew up. He grew up in Houston, Texas. So he's used to this American Southwest setting. So it almost feels sure. like a return home. Um, it, that's 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 very interesting. I didn't think about that. Yeah, yeah. I I want to talk about that line because it is very, um, it's very distinct. And I I as soon as I heard it, I was I like backed off because that kind of like um, oh like there is no point or like oh like you know all of this is like uh, you, like you don't have to understand what's going on. Like maybe there isn't a, a, a solution to the puzzle kind of thing, right? I I find that kind of thing um, grading because it feels like a cop out. It feels like we're just trying to like we're doing all sorts of random stuff instead of doing something intentional. But this contrast with the rest of the movie, right? Everything has its place. There's every piece you know every piece of scenery every actor every piece of costuming right all every line has its like perfect little spot in the movie so it doesn't feel like they're unintentional and schubert green doesn't say uh, the 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 in-universe director doesn't say i um there is no point right he just says you don't have to understand what the point is right so I mean, what do you do? You think of this as a cop out? Do you feel like this movie has no point, or do you feel like this is something else? Because uh, I have my own theory about what this is supposed to mean. I I don't think it's a cop out, um, but I see what you're saying. Of like, yeah, it's always people. You know, absurdity is a fine line to play in uh, storytelling. Um, you don't want obviously absurdity. You want like random things happening. You don't. You don't want san- You don't want randomness. You want absurdity. Yeah, exactly. Right? And so I think. I think to your point, what you said, the wording, I think, makes it not a cop out. If if the director just said it's it doesn't matter, like nothing matters, then I would I would say that's much more of a sort of cheating the audience a little bit. But here it's just like it's fine if you don't understand it. Uh, you might figure it out later, you know, <laughs> like you yeah. might. But for right now, yes, for, for right now, you're doing the thing. And that's the most important part for me. That's not. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, again, I, I understand where the idea of, like, a cop-out is coming from, but the wording feels much more inspiring than it does uh, irreverent, if that yes, makes sense. Yes, it's, it's comforting the way that Adrian Brody delivers this line, yeah. right? He the he says, like, it's okay. Like, he, he, he has him sit down on the chair, and then he kneels so that they're at eye yeah. level because he's so much taller than him. <laughs> and he's, and he's like, it's okay. Like, it doesn't, you don't have to understand it. And I, what I feel like this is, is because this movie is a movie that Wes Anderson is making for himself, for him to watch later. And it feels like this, uh, when you're doing an experiment, you want to have a control, right? You want to have something where you know that the outcome is going to be. So that when you're doing the other part of the experiment, you can compare what was supposed to happen versus what uh, you you know, what you theorize would happen. And this movie feels like he's trying to create a control. He's trying to create a 
purely sterile environment, something completely of his own, right? Asteroid City is in the middle of the desert, and it's constructed only of his own imagination. Nothing else can get in, right? But of course, absurdity always moves in. You know, you can't predict everything. But what we were, I'm keep thinking about this quote from um, David Fincher. It was something we we talked about when we did our Vertigo episode, talking about Hitchcock, and he says that you can't. He says, as the director, you can't keep yourself from the screen. You have to. You put yourself on screen every time you make something, and there's no way for you to not do that. And I think that when I think what Anderson is doing in this movie is he's creating an environment where he's allowing himself to be himself on screen to discover what he is later, right? He doesn't know what he's doing right now. All he knows is he's got this story to tell about how art influences artists. And he wants to then come back to it later and find out what it is that makes himself tick, you know? Because when you make art, art also makes you. Because this is the line right before he says, this doesn't matter or anything. He said, uh, the director, Schubert Green, played by Adrian Brody, says to Schwartzman, uh, you know, Augie, you haven't just become Augie. Augie has become you, right? Conflating the two things that it's not just that you're, uh, uh, that the, you're making art or that you're dedicating yourself to the art, but the art is also like changing you too in, in a way. And that's like a, I really love that idea of like, like the process of making something also changes you and makes you into something else. And this movie, like it doesn't, Anderson doesn't know what he's going to end up being because he's still in the process of making it. Right. doesn't necessarily mean that he hasn't had, doesn't have some sort of intention. There are certainly things that are said in this movie that I feel like are resonant, but I think that there's a, um, there's this idea of like, I'm going to make this and then it's going to change me and then I'll be able to look at it later and see what it is that I'm really about. What What is it about me that I put in this movie that I didn't even realize I was putting in it? And maybe it's something that you and I won't be able to recognize. Only he will be able to recognize. But it's, um, it's like this exercise in self-discovery in a way. Yeah, I love that a lot because it's so weird to talk about because a, a lot goes into making a movie. A lot of people, you know, are in the movie, yes. in, involved in making of the movie. We'd like to talk about all these directors, you know, like you said, the David Finchers, you know, maybe the David Lynch's, the Stanley Kubrick's, Wes Anderson, all these auteurs and everything. And it's like we call them their movies. But there's so many people involved. Um, but I love I love your what you said about this is a movie Wes Anderson made so he can watch later because this feels like such a time and place kind of movie. Um this, and this was something I was trying to figure out. Like, one thing I was so lost about after the movie was, like, I don't know how to quantify how I feel right now. Like, I feel something, yeah. but I don't know what. And that might be one of those things of, like, Wes Anderson might have put so much of himself in this that people who aren't, like, him or in his inner circle may not understand it fully. So, no, I love the, I love that idea of a, a – I, I love when I love when artists make art for themselves, you know? Because, like, you know, right. capitalism dictates, like, hey, this is for the audience so they can, like – you know, sell tickets and make money or whatever. But from a more philosophical idea, it is really like their project. They, they're they putting their soul into it and you're just witnessing it. So you can only try to decipher what they're trying to tell. It's the irony of Wes Anderson is that he, everything has to have its place, right? Everything is so perfect, right? And it almost feels like he's stripping anything weird or, you know, strange about humanity out of it. But it's impossible to do that. And all of his movies feature distinct 
like like uh, moments of just grief or tragedy or violence, right? Something happens that's just so insane. And it's contrasted with the neatness of the rest of the movie, right? And what what these always do is highlight the pure emotion behind what he's making, right? It's this, it's, uh, even though it f- can feel sometimes like almost sterile, what, what he, he described the, the lighting in the desert as clean, right? Not hot, not cold, but clean, almost as, as if disinfectant. But it's a... Um, Instead of it just being this, you know, pure thing, right? It, it is uh, still uh, brimming with this emotion and care that is uh, that is only possible if you care so much, right? It's only possible to make something that looks so clean and distinct if you care so so much. <laughs> you really, really, really like are passionate about it, you know, and. It, I mean, it's it's almost like the it's almost a reflection of the entire human experience, which is that we are creatures of order, right? We try to put things in in their place. We try to organize chaos, right? Even though, like you know, entropy will always win. Uh, while we're here, we're always trying to put things back where they're supposed to go. You know, we're trying to find out how to unbreak eggs and uh, <laughs> how to untoast toast. You know, yeah. <laughs> those are those are problems that we're trying to solve. And it's um, and so Anderson is like in a way like reflecting that in trying to order unorder, right? Trying to put everything into its spot and and exact do exactly where it put everything exactly where it's supposed to be. Um, but in doing that. He's unable to hide his true passion for making something that he really loves, um, and that's uh, you know another part of chaos, something that we we uh, we assign to this like pure um, like creative spirit that we, that cannot be bridled, you know. Right, and and that's why I think he does so many like you talk about people with this perfect symmetry, uh, the actors, you know, deadpan performances, stuff like that. I I the reason I love it, he's my favorite director because I love. I love artists who make it known that they're they're aware they're making art. You know, they're not trying to hide. They're not trying to make it realistic. They're like, this is clearly a movie. Like, you know, <laughs> yes. like I, I love that because then it allows the emotions to grow in this artifice rather than trying to, you know, your people are so focused on making something realistic that. Oh, I freaking hate realistic dialogue <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean people like, are like i'm gonna write this and people are like uh, i don't know how to say whatever it's like that ah, screw it you know we don't have that much time like do you like, ever just... listen to people like why would you want to hear more of that <laughs> exactly <laughs> but no that yeah I, I agree with everything you said uh before before we move on because we could talk i could talk about you know hours about themes and everything i want to say i love i love that you said about wes talking about how clean the desert is because that's a shout out to lawrence of arabia which is one of my favorite movies so Ah, interesting. I did not know I just that. Gotta, That's I, cool. Yeah, because the main character, they ask him why he loves the desert, and he just says it's so clean, which, oh, you know, if you think about the contrast with the quarantine, you know, with diseases and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> uh, there are other, you know, themes at play here. Are there any other ones you want to um, touch on? Uh, just briefly, uh, I, I, I mentioned jokingly about the quarantine, but I think that had a very tangible impact on the theme of this movie with specifically with human connection because during the quarantine we were so limited you know we were you know in our rooms just by ourselves for the most part so i feel like wes anderson's exploring human connection in his own kind of quirky idiosyncratic way you know with the junior stargazers they're all strangers they don't know each other but they form this bond because they're all kind of misfits the parents are all bonding in their own 
complaining kind of way. <laughs> uh, <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a line from the um, the Hickenlooper, the Tilda Swinton character, who is pondering, like, you know, maybe I <laughs> was like, people like you make me wonder if I should have had kids or something. And yeah, and yeah. in, in, like we talked on it briefly, but I don't know how Wes Anderson is able to have so many great characters played by so many phenomenal actors and just able to eke out just enough pathos for the audience to be like, yeah, I love that character. Like I love Willem Dafoe and Steve Zissou, like, <laughs> but he's just, he's not even doing anything. <laughs> he's just, <laughs> exactly. It's so, it's so interesting. I, I, like this cast is so deep. There's so many like really, really talented people and they all get like a little tiny piece to shine. It really is a, a incredible that he doesn't get like, it doesn't get completely derailed by B plots, you know. There are a lot of little tiny things that happen in the background, but it's easy to take them or leave them, right? And and uh, it's it, they're always kind of this fun departure from the main story that I really that I really enjoyed. Yeah, that. I thought about the Maya Hawk character, the school teacher, and yes. she's just that that whole B plot is completely irrelevant, but it's it's so <laughs> it's wonderfully quirky, you know. It just like I can't imagine the movie. It's so weird because it feels irrelevant to the whole plot, but I cannot imagine the movie without it. Like I can't imagine without Billy. You know, it's like there's an alien and then the like impromptu yeah, yeah. like musical number. Like it's just it's so interesting how Wes Anderson. Well, what about uh, what about Steve Carell and his vending machine? That's the best bit. That I was dying every time he showed up in that. There's a there's a like a machine for everything. It's like you want to buy real yes. estate. <laughs> No, that one like turns on later. He's like, "Okay, how do you? How does this work? <laughs> you put ten quarters in, and then you can buy a plot of land." It's like right there. It's, it's just so, so funny. nonplussed by the most absurdity. Like, <laughs> yes, no, he was great in this. He was so great in this. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the human connection thing is is huge. Um, what I was thinking about uh, is is related to this idea of like this experiment, right? You have this idea. You have this very sterile environment there's something that that is purely uh everything in the movie is a set right which is which is which makes sense because they're in they're supposed to be a play right but even the buildings that you're looking at seem like facades they don't even seem like real buildings and they're set in this like you know barren landscape there's not even like there's barely anything around there's like a road runner yeah right? and, like, there's, not even, there's barely even like, cactuses there's it's like there's no elevation there's mountains way in the distance but that's it it's just like freaking flat and uh there, this is I, there's this idea of like what if i could just like anderson's sort of saying what if i could just make something that was pure right but of course it doesn't work that way because as soon as they get into the town right Something unexpected happens. They they show up to the mechanics uh, place, and he's like, "Okay, it's one of two problems, right? One one's easy, one's hard." Uh, and then they, you know, he puts in the the fix, and then the the car just breaks down in a whole new way. Uh, all the tires deflate. I thought that was so funny. <laughs> like, like what, what possibly could be the problem that that would happen? And then like something comes out of the car, and the mechanic is like, uh, "I." Uh, I don't even know what that is. Uh, this is some <laughs> unknown third problem, right? It, what it feels like is like in the, in the quarantine is the same way, right? The, the, it's unable to contain the like he, like the ex- human experience, right? The more you try to hold on to something, the more tightly you try to grip something, the more it just squeezes out in unexpected ways, right? And in this movie, it squeezes out through an alien visiting, but also by blending the production with the actual story, right? It starts to break the fourth wall uh, inside of the own 
inside of its own fourth wall breaking, right? By, by trying to contain the story so neatly. And, um, yeah, I feel like that's really, um, really interesting. I think it says something about the human condition and about how even when you're isolated from the rest of the world, you'll end up creating your own world inside of it with everything you could possibly need. And how no matter what kind of authority or, you know, rules are set in place, it won't stop you from doing what you want to do. Those junior stargazers are like, we're going to contact the outside world and nothing's going to stop them. You know, they're <laughs> going to figure out a way to do it. I, so it's just this... Um, it's like kind of this uh, ode to the human spirit in a way, even in like very dire situations, uh, I, I think is really nice. I don't think this movie is like an anti-lockdown movie. I think it's more of a commentary on how people act when they're put under these kind of situations and how it's almost like this futile gesture. It's not even worth trying to create this like contaminated less town or or impose a, a lockdown because ultimately people are just going to end up doing what they want to do and find a way to, to break through that um anyway and, and uh last thing i'll say joey everything you just said uh is symbolized in the simple image of the three dots and then a fourth dot shows up yes like exactly that, I, I was I, exactly. I was listening to uh, uh freddie wong who is a filmmaker uh famous youtuber and he was Love he him. was talking about as he's gotten you know, older and more experienced as a filmmaker, he's not impressed with big budget special effects anymore. He's more impressed by just simple edits, just simple shots. And the fact that everything that quantified that you just said in that image of three dot, you know, an ellipses, we know what ellipses means, but what happens when the fourth dot shows up? It's just so symbolic for like everything you just said. Yes, it, exactly. It's like, oh, we understand infinity. Oh, we understand there's something after this. Pop. No, you and don't. <laughs> yeah. And then something, yeah, and then something happens. You're like, oh no. No, it's it's just great. Like, I think I think that's a great sign of a filmmaker is what, if they can say a lot with a little. And yes. as much as people love, you know, Wes Anderson's maximalist. You know, it's his everything. Sometimes it, his best shots are the simplest ones, and that's one of them. So, I that's what I like the best about him. You know, is that he's actually there is this like there is something he's trying to say. You know, it's not just the visuals, right? It is there is this meaning and passion behind the, the work. And um, that means you take advantage of, of that kind of opportunity, right? You, it means you take something simple and uh, it symbolizes that whole thing. Um, yeah, I, and I actually, okay, so I read this article from The New Yorker um, that was really interesting. It used a lot of words that I had to look up because <laughs> I didn't know they were, what they meant. Um, and it said something about how there, the, uh, this is a movie about um, the, the inflection point between like the stuffy fifties and like the reinvention of, or like the, the explosion of technology um, in like the sixties and seventies. And this is like just before that. And these junior stargazers are going to be the ones that um, like bring in the new age of technology. Right. And uh, it said that this is symbolized by the fact that the production contains uh, none of the production scenes contain any children, but children play prominent roles in the play itself. And um, you, there's like this kind of idea of, uh, you know, all of the adults have their ideas about what they uh, what they think the world should be. They have this idea of order that, that we need to adhere to. And the children don't adhere to that realm of order, right? The junior stargazers are encouraged to break you know, scientific norms and, and create something new. But even like the school children, right, they are being taught by their teacher that there's nine planets and uh, I only know about what I know about these planets. So this is what you're going to learn. But the children are like, 
what about this alien though? You know, I, I built this spaceship out of a hubcap. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote this song about the alien. You know, the kids are inspired by this new thing. They're, they're ready for the next thing, you know, where the adults are, are terrified and uh, are trying to fit it into uh, the order that they already have established, but the children are not the same thing with the, with the little girls, right? They are, um, witches the, they're witches the, the, yeah, that's right. they, they, the little uh you know the the, the diner the, the you know the uh waitress at the diner she says oh who, what should i get for the princesses and they say we're not princesses we're mummies vampires and witches <laughs> um you know they, they're not conforming to the what uh the adults think of as their um what the future is right they're they're going to this uh, they're they're moving into a new space something that's uh, uh unprecedented un, unrealized yet and um Maybe that's a a reference to uh, our current generation, you know, Gen Z and their obsession with uh, paganism. <laughs> it's a, it is a like um, you know, it's it's a rejection of the old order, right? It's 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 a move into something new. I was I wasn't really concerned. Well, the kids almost represent all that chaos you were talking about earlier. Exactly, yeah, they're almost the embodiment of it. So, and and I just want to shout out the stargazer, who's like the hard hitting journalist. When he's being questioned, one of the funniest exchanges in a Wes Anderson. Oh movie. my gosh! So You're not gonna get it. me to talk. I'm not gonna spill my middle school journalism <laughs> connections. <laughs> this is the this is what uh, was Isle of Dogs come out before? Um, was Isle of Dogs then uh, French Dispatch then this one? Yeah, right? Is yeah, that right? Yeah. So this is the third movie in a row where journalism is the real hero. <laughs> um, like in real life, uh, that that uh, that actor was Ethan Josh Lee. He was one of my favorites in the movie. Oh, uh, he was he so good. And yeah, it. he was he was like, being interrogated by like the FBI or whatever. Yeah, right? like, I'm not gonna suits. talk <laughs> in in, uh, in in section three. Yeah. And then he was being you know interrogated by Gibson by the general, and he was still like you know resolute. He was like, no, I'm never giving up. You know, this is this is the right thing to do. And his dad is like, awesome. you said what you need to say. It's like, no, dad, I'm gonna talk shit to the general. <laughs> like, just amazing <laughs> yeah i love that i really did i also uh i like how a lot of the kids uh, uh besides uh sophia lillis all the all the kids are played by relatively unknown actors like some of them don't even have wikipedia entries um wow and and yeah it's uh um uh, what's the what's the kid who plays woodrow's name uh jake ryan Yes. Um, he's been in some other Wes Anderson movies. Really? Um, but he has not been in um, – well, yeah, he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. And he's not uh, He's not that notable. But he was great. I thought he was really good in this movie. He looks like – he really does look like a younger Jason <laughs> <He> Schwartzman. <does. laughs> it's pretty amazing. It's amazing that Wes Anderson's already found the next generation of Jason Schwartzman for his he's movies. He's already <laughs> setting up all the like, all right, you're going to be in 10 of my movies. You're going to be in 12. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Okay, so there's a there's a line from this movie. It's it starts off kind of I feel like uh, uh, what's it feels inspiring at first, like uh, or um, very like uh, um, interesting, and then it starts to get starts to get creepy the more people say it. Um, and the line is, "You can't wake up if you don't fall asleep." What do you feel like this means, uh, Eli? What, what do you, what does it mean to? Not wake up if you don't fall asleep. Uh, when you asked me this question, the outline I answered with, I have no idea, LOL. Uh, because that was my initial reaction. Because it's so, it, like you said, it's it starts off as just like, oh, that's a, you know. Because it, the scene is like they're trying, the, the playwright uh, played by Edward Norton, he doesn't know how to like continue the story. And uh, Jason Schwartzman's character is like, 
well, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. And I was like, what does that mean? And then everybody just starts chanting it. And there's these weird, like, Dutch angles. It just gets darker. And it's honestly scary. And then the real alien yeah, shows up. Yeah, and then the up. alien shows up with the asteroid. Oh, I... And he's, like, stalking toward the camera. And everyone's looking right at the camera saying this over Easily the most scared I've ever been watching a Wes Anderson movie. Like, I, <laughs> I was unsettled. But, uh, yeah, I, so I, as with everything, there's tons of ways to interpret this line. Uh, for me, I was thinking about it, you know, as a creative, uh, I was thinking about the idea of, we, you know, we live in the information area and everybody feels, at least I do, uh, and I feel like in mass, a lot of other people do, overstimulated by just the information. You know, we have so much of mankind's, you know, knowledge. I think overstimulated might be the word of the year. The, uh, yeah, exactly. Just overstimulated. Like even, you know, I, I, I tried like just to sit in silence, not look at my phone. And I was like, I didn't last very long just cause I'm so used to needing that sort of stimulation. And I feel like Wes Anderson might be saying something maybe about art in that you have to be bored to make art. You know, I, 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 I studied creative writing in college and one of my creative writing classes, my professor said that you need to be bored. Like, he was thankful he'd lived in, you know, when he was younger, not in the era of smartphones, because he came up with all the ideas that would become his, like, his his novels in, uh, when he was just bored. He was just sitting around house. He had nothing to do, so he would just read or, like, sit in the grass and think, and that's how he came up with his ideas. And I think that's what Wes Anderson's saying, is that you can't, you can't constantly be on. Sometimes you need mm. to just, like, you just need to sleep sometimes you just need to like take a walk sometimes you just need to unplug for a little bit and art will manifest itself that way we're always in this constant like forward momentum culture like you know the grind mindset and all that like what are you doing like uh, what are you doing that's not helping you know building your portfolio that's not building your profits or whatever i think wes anderson is like maybe he developed this in quarantine where you know people were sort of stymied uh were like it, it's terrifying, but it also might be a good thing, at least for a little while, to just decompress and figure out yourself with some introspection. So that, that was my first take on it. Uh, I have no idea how you interpret that, but for me... <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh, this is very interesting because I feel like that was that's very like personal to you, and my interpretation is very personal to me. But, I, but first, I agree completely with what you're saying here, that you have to be bored. Um, I think that the way the brain works is that you interpret information and then it processes that information and eventually connections are made but you have to give time for that processing if you are constantly being stimulated with new things and you never get a chance to like ever form those connections and sometimes it takes a long time sometimes it takes a while for you to actually mull through the thing and for the thing to go through all the different uh, uh, I'm imagining my brain as like a, one of these elaborate Dr. Seuss contraptions, <laughs> or maybe the, the, one of the one of the vending machines at a Steve Carell's hotel, uh, uh, where you put in quarters and like a, an elaborate Rube Goldberg machine goes through. It has to, it takes time for that thing to to finish, and by the time it's finished, then you have something, but you have to allow it to do that. So yeah, I completely agree with you. For me, I thought of this as one of my favorite things, uh, one of my favorite lines. And I'm not sure who said this. I believe we credited it to Albert Camus on uh, Affable Chat now, uh, our website, affablechat.com. But you, um, uh, but the the line is, um, fiction is a lie that tells the truth. And for me, th- this idea of falling asleep, like you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep, means um, uh, you have to suspend disbelief in order to uh, uh, realize something. You have to give yourself to something whatever you're experiencing and act in as if it is a dream believe you are dreaming and that the dream is real in order for you to wake up 
as in waking up to realize something true, right? It, you cannot live in reality constantly. You have to sometimes in, uh, enjoy or experience something that's not real in order to realize something about your own life. Well, yeah, it's like, I, I can't remember where it's from, but I've always heard that you are the dreamer and the dream. And we yes. mentioned this before where uh, you mentioned it earlier when like the art becomes the artist sometimes the dream becomes the dreamer and everything. So it's this, you know, feedback loop, a good feedback loop, something that can make yourself, you know, grow, you know, like, like, yes. like escapism gets a hard rap for being, you know, escapist because people don't want to deal with their problems. But I think you need that escapism sometimes to. And, and so rarely have I come across something that is purely escapism. You know, it's, it, that happens occasionally, but it's often about something like today it's often about something that's happening around us right we are we are products of our environments it's not possible to not talk about what's happening around us and for uh, directors or actors or anyone else writers to um uh put that on to in their art right to to reflect what they see as reality and sometimes it is like trying to escape but sometimes but i think that it's uh i think it's always interesting like listening or watching or reading science fiction uh, the most inter- most interesting stuff or the most telling stuff is the stuff that stays the same, you know, the stuff that they assume is um, inalienable, right? That will always be true about humanity. Uh, that's the stuff that um, uh, is revealing about the uh, the writer or director. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Okay, so we talked a little bit about this framing device. Um, why, like, I want to talk about this kind of in context with the other framing devices that Anderson uses. Um, why do you feel like he's relying on a framing device for this movie? And why do you feel like he's kind of moving toward this kind of story inside of story narrative uh, in, in, in his movies? What, what do you think that says? I think framing device is a way to naturally get the audience into the world of your art. Because, hmm. say, like I think of Wes Anderson's, uh, I think of the Grand Budapest Hotel and how that opens up with a woman on a park bench reading the book, The Grand Budapest Hotel. In doing that, you are now in the movie, essentially, as this woman reading the book. You are part of the experience now because you're reading a story that the characters are reading. It's It, it comes across... For me, it's like a super... Kind of like tongue-in-cheek way of saying, like, you're part of the movie now. Like, nah, 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 yeah. you don't have a choice. <laughs> it's it's a way of, like, bringing people further in. It's, like, kind of like, it's reeling people in, you know, with the, some things like that's, yeah, helping you suspend your disbelief. Yeah, and I also think it's a fertile grounds for character writing, because I, I keep going back to Grand Budapest Hotel. Honestly, the more I think about it, the more Asteroid City feels like a companion piece to the Grand Budapest Hotel, because they both deal with frame narratives, but in different ways. But in Grand Budapest Hotel the character of Zero is not the same played by F. Murray Abraham as it is Tony Rivoli. Yeah. Um, they are essentially different characters. And you as you as an audience are interested in seeing how, you know, how that character became that character. And that that is why one of my criticisms of Asteroid City is I don't understand the actor. I think his name is Jones Hall, but yes. I really that <laughs> I I don't know who that is. You know, he had the one scene of you know talking to the playwright but otherwise i still don't understand him as a character that much um i wanted to i really wanted to because the scenes we had were interesting but i i think wes anderson really loves this frame narrative because it's it provides so much interesting ways to in, it, it, it involves the audience i guess is what i'm trying to say yeah that's i think it's a really good answer um yeah i think that 
having that kind of uh I mean, I, I think about other fra famous framing devices. Name of the Wind certainly comes to mind, right? Where you have a character who's describing himself as one way, but he's clearly not that way yeah. right now, right? And that's it's a really powerful motivator because you really want to know how, how it gets there, right? Mm -hmm. That's what kept me reading uh, Infinite Jest, actually, because it starts off with the end of the book. And I'm like, well, how does, it, well, what, how does it get there? <laughs> how does this happen to him? And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, but this uh, doesn't tell you. Um, the, <laughs> the, um, uh, but, yeah, I think that could have been more powerful, right? It, it, but I think that it goes along with how this movie is is breaking itself in, in half, right? It's, it, or uh, I think you said, like, kind of molding together. I'm thinking of it as, um, like, the film reel or the, the film itself is sort of melting yeah <laughs> it's, you're seeing what's happening like behind the scenes um it's like a it's a, maybe like those two things being simultaneous is uh necessary for the narrative but I, I think it is more powerful if you can see if if it gives you some sort of promise and, and then tries to get you to 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 reach that um uh by by promising one thing and then um you know taking you on this journey to, to get there i guess i guess what threw me off too about this frame narrative in asteroid city was like the the real life shots felt like a play in and of themselves, so it was hard to differentiate. Yes. Like, okay, this isn't a play. Well, this it's, is real life. It's a TV program about ah! the play, right? <laughs> I forgot. Brian Cranston's hosting a television oh, program <laughs> about this about the production of the play yeah, yeah. that you're So there's watching. like three narratives going on. <laughs> right. So so Scott Johansson is an actress playing an actress playing an actress. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm gonna change my rating for this movie. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, it's just like yeah, I I always balk at the criticism that he's style over substance. You can spend days just analyzing a single of his movies because there's just so much within the artifice. If you just look at it from a, you know, a surface level uh, perspective, then yeah, you won't get much out of it. It's only when you dive deep like that. I didn't even think about that, <laughs> but now that you did, it gave me a whole new perspective. So yeah, yeah, no, I I completely agree with you with that. And that's why and that's why I mentioned like frame narrative, not only just like as an audience watching the movie itself you get involved it's the involvement after the fact because now you have to think about how all the frames come together um right yeah so so do you feel like that uh anderson's uh act actors are often you know i think over directed might be a uh understatement um <laughs> he they in this movie especially they feel very wooden like you know they feel very much uh at, at a distance it didn't really take me out of it and i think that might be because i was constantly being reminded of this framing device that they were in a play right and that this was something that like anything that was like out of ordinary or anything should be taken um as like a, a an extra level or something like that I, I don't know if that excuses you know poor acting or or over direction but what did you make of that as far as this goes i mean uh, you know, do you think uh, Scarlett Johansson uh, <laughs> convincingly played an actress? <laughs> uh, I get, one of my biggest issues with the movie was I I couldn't tell the characters apart, even though, like you said, they're technically playing th three characters. I yeah. it didn't feel like it. It felt like it was just Midge Campbell within Asteroid City within the black and white segments. So no, I, I think it failed on that front. I didn't see like. The, the deadpan expression, it didn't feel, you know, more so than any of his other movies. And I, I, I've i always had this theory. I've never listened to, like, an interview where an actor has said this. But I feel like the reason Wes Anderson gets a lot of these actors is 
the actors want a challenge, right? I think they're mm-hmm. like, how can I get as much emotion, uh, an emotional performance out of these, you know, this deadpan performance that I know Wes Anderson's known for. And I think there were moments where the actors, you know, brought some emotion within the Wes Anderson deadpan. But no, I agree with you. It, it, at times it, the it was so aloof and kind of distant that it it didn't I didn't sympathize with the characters as much as his other movies, which I, I mentioned before. I, I think it's the same level of deadpan, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's really hard to say, right? I mean, there's a lot of different narratives going on, so um, you don't get, like, a lot of time with any one person. You get you get a, quite a bit of time with Woodrow and with Augie and with Midge, um, and I feel like they're, they're pretty well developed. When um, I have this theory, and I don't know if it makes any sense, but... Uh, that um, Jones Hall, the actor who plays Augie, actually burned his hand yeah, on I, the thing. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Because <laughs> of the way that uh, Midge, Scarlett Johansson's character, reacts. She's like, that really happened. That you know, that just happened. That really happened. And it, she seems like really surprised, like sort of all, like uh, – like she, well, she's, like it might be playing both sides here. Like where she, where he, the act, the uh, character burns his hand in order to feel something, maybe to wake up from the where he's asleep, and then, um, but maybe the actor actually did burn his hand because he's starting to lose track of what's what it's all for. You know, he's he's trying to feel something. Uh, in this, well, yeah, because Midge Campbell, when he burns his hand, she's looking like off screen, like. Like, yeah. was that supposed to happen? Like, no, no, I had that realization afterwards. I was just like, ah. I was like, it was funny. I was like, I was trying to figure it out. I was in this malaise and I thought about the hand burning scene. And I had like this, whoa, wait. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that's part of the fun is like when, you know, and it's fun in a Wes Anderson movie. That's part of the absurdism and irony is when something crazy happens and the characters act all deadpan and formal. That's why Steve Carell is one of my favorite bit characters because he's, yes. he's, he's just he's dealing with all this just absurdity with the most level-headed like cordialness that should is not warranted at all <laughs> yes and leave schreiber too right he plays the father of one of the stargazers and he's that the stargazer is always asking people if they dare him to do something and then he does something and then they say no and he does it anyway and it's like something really dangerous um and uh, yeah, so like Leif Schreiber like has that whole breakdown with him, and at one point tries to choke him out, like uh, like Homer from yeah. <laughs> And um, he's uh, yeah, he's like, I don't care anymore. He's like, Why do you have to do this? Um, which feels very like it. It doesn't feel like it's out of place, right? It feels like he's gotten to this point, and he really is exasperated. Um, but it is kind of notable in that it is like full uh, of emotion. It feels like it's very. Um, um, it feels very real, yeah. right? Well, you talk about emotion. What about the 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 stargazer who broke the scene and is getting interrogated? He's he brought the <laughs> yes. most emotion in this movie. Yes, he was really passionate. <laughs> he wasn't about gonna it, for sure. he wasn't gonna write out his sources. <laughs> and the um and the, like, the love story between Dinah and Woodrow also felt like it felt very much it felt very central to the story. It, and it was um it was very satisfying seeing them. You know, uh, after uh, Woodrow puts uh, the uh, their initials in a heart yeah. on the moon, right? <laughs> when they were kissing at the end, I thought that was great, and um, yeah, that was that was a satisfying ending to that to that romance too. I and I was I certainly felt the kind of sexual tension between these characters, right? And I and between Midge and uh, Augie too, cool. but it's like, but it's so subtle, right? Yeah. It's like, it's in some cases they're like literally stating their motivations, in some cases they're like 
uh, it's it's very like reserved and it's unclear how far it's going to go right it's unclear like what exactly is going to happen here but like although there isn't a sex scene uh scarlett johansson does it does do a brief like full frontal nudity shot and there is like a uh, implied sex scene between her and augie right yeah it, to say like this these movies contain nothing is not um you know no no emotion at all is wrong uh it's just like this it feels like these like emotional high points more than it is like this constant you know uh tenor yeah no i agree with that do you have a favorite uh junior stargazer invention i like the loomer uh woodrow's lunar image projector because it was like think of the think of the advertising potential like that that's the most (laughs) capitalist just (laughs) i think i've literally heard that before i think i've literally heard people say something like they can project images on the moon and they want to sell it to people wasn't that wait wasn't that a um um the ending of hancock do you remember that movie with will smith oh no i never uh, saw that but i know what you're talking about he um he plays like a superman character he's like kind of a deadbeat yeah and Jason Bateman is like his friend who like gets him back on his feet, and he's like a ad exec or something. And uh, so Hancock goes to the moon and draws like his company's logo on the moon or something, so they can see it from Earth. Uh, <laughs> it's just it's just so ridiculous, but it's ridiculous because I know in real life they would do that. <laughs> Definitely, hundred um, percent. Yeah, I I really like the 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 ray gun i thought that was great it's just such um, a dumb design it's like this little thing it was like three yeah and i love when they're when they're doing like a pot shots so like shooting shooting a ski yeah, out in the desert. and then they're <laughs> and then the um the the military is right next to them and they're they have like actual rifles and they're like hold on <laughs> <laughs> <can't do> <laughs> it's like it's like these parents don't appreciate the level of like like brilliance of their children that they're just using this invention yeah. that change that could change the world to just do trap shooting. <laughs> it's just so funny. <laughs> um, one okay, one other thing I wanted to talk about uh, briefly is um, Scarlett Johansson's character plays an actress who is sort of aging, you might say. Right? She's sort of she's having to having to change her the type of role she takes on because she's becoming older. And uh, she says something along the lines of how she was uh, like this timeless beauty or something where she was like this, you know, symbol of like beauty, feminine uh, beauty. Um, And this felt very meta to me because I've always felt that Scarlett Johansson is a wonderful actress who is cast because she looks a certain way. And, Although she is like, but she, I think she's the highest grossing actress of all time because of the Avengers movies. Um, I still feel like there's this worry for her that she's been typecast as like the hot superhero and not so much for her own like, or like the temptress, you know, which is also something that she's kind of um, been cast like a prominent role, match point and the prestige specifically. Um, and I wonder like, what's going to happen with her in the future and if she will continue to have such a celebrated career, especially when she, when her standalone movies are usually really bad. <laughs> Ghost in the Shell, Lucy, terrible for <laughs> But she's not the worst part in those, you know, it's it really is the, the script and it's, it's her like, um, I, 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 it's far, hard to say, like, I feel bad for her, but like, I definitely felt for her in this movie. I felt like this, she stood out as, uh, as like this, 
uh, uniquely tragic character, um, not just because she was pretending or she's acting to be abused and acting as if she's going to commit suicide, <laughs> um, but because uh, she feels like she's at the tail end of something and it's hard to know what will happen next. And I, um, yeah, I, I hope that uh, you know she continues to have a, a really celebrated career. I, f I hope she has does more movies like this that are sort of introspective and vulnerable, uh, because it feels because it feels like um, she hasn't had that chance before. Well, uh, that happened in real life with Michelle Yeoh. You know, with yes, uh, that's right. Yeah, with everything everywhere all at once. She was talking about how nobody wanted to hire her anymore because she was old, and this, you know, she had to do uh, take a role in this A twenty four absurdist sci-fi yes kung fu daniel's movie. <laughs> vehicle but that was that was the platform to to relaunch her career and you know i'm assuming i don't know her personally but from the interviews this was her this was as much for her you know not just for her career but yeah. her personally of just like no i can still act i'm still great um and so yeah no i i agree with you you know now that scarlett johansson's time with the avengers is over um both story-wise and sort of uh just and because of legal problems. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so it seems like, yeah, now she's has to, you know, venture out and do more of these, I don't want to say indie flicks, but, you know, um, I know Black Widow wasn't the most popular Avengers character, so who knows if she'll be, you know, a mainstay in the action blockbuster scenes. But I, she's an amazing actress. Like She really yeah, is. Like you said, the movies where she wasn't, you know, her solo movies weren't good. I, I don't think necessarily it's her fault, but... Uh, yeah, no, she was great in this movie, and I think any, I think you know, she could succeed in anything because of that acting ability. So yeah, there is that meta perspective of like, I don't, th I don't and, think Wes Anderson purposely just, cast her for that reason, but but there's that, no. but there's that like that uh, real world parallel there that maybe even drove her for this performance. Yeah, I, I hope so because I think it is something that like we should consider. It's it's terrible. She. You know, she's according to IMDb, she's thirty nine. Like she's not even old. No, like, but like it's, the, the society is so skewed when it comes to like <laughs> pop culture figures and time. Right, and like in this, she's like, yeah, she's like, I'm an aging actress. You know, like, uh, but I think in this movie, she's plays someone. I think they say she's thirty three or something <laughs> like that. Um, it's like it's crazy. Like, and obviously, she still looks amazing. So it, it's it's uh, it's just um, I don't know. It's it's a really strange like position I, I not strange position it's a tragic position to be in right and i and i i hope that like this is sort of a uh you know introspective and also um you know rejuvenating thing for her and i do hope she has that that chance to do something like michelle yao did uh especially since uh i mean michelle yao is incredibly talented but so is scott johansson yeah. i mean you can see the way she moves it's, she's amazing so okay um, that's going to be it for our first part. We will take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Hello, I'm Tab Whitney. I play the role of Jock Larkings, Titan of the armaments and aeronautics industry, and an exciting new picture coming soon to this theater. The character of Jock Larkings, my role, I regret will not appear in the final version of the film as prepared by the editorial department and supervised by chief executives of the studio. However, I do have with me at this time the exciting new talent, Jones Hall, who lights up the screen as the passionate Augie Steenbeck, war photographer, in the most powerful production to date from American Empirical Pictures. Now, Asteroid City 
is based on a play, isn't it, Jones? That's correct, Tava, by the late Conrad Earp. The great playwright. Hmm. Tell us about Asteroid City. Well, Tab, Asteroid City is a movie for our times, 1955. It's about people like you and me. Tell us more, Jones. Well, Tab, <clears throat> it's about love, death, hope, war, peace, art, science, deep sadness, the unknown, and America. That's the subject matter. Also infinity, and I don't know what else. We're back. I'm here with Eli, future extra and Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> you say that, Joey, but you are too. Everyone is. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, high praise. Um, and uh, we're here to talk about our cool Easter eggs um, and anything else interesting about this movie. Um, so first, I want to mention this um, commercial that was shot for the movie. It stars Jason Schwartzman and Bill Murray. Uh, Bill Murray was set to play the character of the motel owner that Steve Carell took, um, but he got COVID right before the production started and he was unable to film. And because there are so many notable actors in this movie, uh, it's not possible to really rearrange it for Bill Murray's sake. Um, even though he's been in pretty much every Wes Anderson movie yep. since Steve Zizou, maybe before that. No, right? he was in Rushmore. He was in Rushmore. That's right. He's like, From the beginning. He's a mainstay. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, the, the commercial is, uh, uh, it features Bill Murray playing a character that doesn't appear in the movie. Um, his, shoot, what's his name? His, his, uh, Larkings. His name is Larkings, and the, that name does appear on some of the um, infrastructure in the movie, including, I think, the warheads uh, that you see. Um, they're, like, of Lark Larkings property or, or whatever. Uh, so he's, like, a financier. He's, like, an entrepreneur. He's, like, some rich guy uh, who is uh, funding the uh, production of this movie <laughs> or this play. And... Um, He's uh, the idea behind this was, uh, you know, Anderson really wanted to have uh, Murray in the movie. So he's like, how about this? We will film something that is canonically cut for time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it doesn't actually like if you watch it, it's like it really is a commercial, right? It's like, hey, come see this play. We worked really hard on it kind of thing. And they like wander through the set and it, they and uh, Schwartzman and Murray struggle to find their exact uh, positioning and frame. They're like like kind of stepping past each other. Um, and, uh, he, and Bill Murray's holding a bunch of uh, note cards uh, to read from. So it's uh, it, 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 it's, kind of, it's pretty funny and uh, worth checking out. A little supplement for this movie. Um, Eli, do you have any Easter eggs for us? I do. So, uh, listener, did you enjoy all those beautiful shots of the American Southwest? Well, guess what? You were duped. <laughs> <laughs> Movie magic. Yes. <laughs> Asteroid City was actually filmed not in the American Southwest, but in Spain, uh, specifically in a small town of Ch Ch uh, Chicon, which is sort of in central Spain near Madrid. Um, the, the Chicon is sort of uh, well-known for being a site of other auteur filmmakers. So Orson Welles actually filmed two, uh, he did two films here, Chimes at Midnight and The Immortal Story. And uh, 
and uh, national, you know, Spaniard Pedro Almodovar uh, film Matador there. So it's just interesting. Wow. This town has like 5,000 people, but for whatever reason, it's just the location to film for our tourship. I, I just love hearing about like, you know, movies set in New York are actually shot in Vancouver or like, <laughs> yes, it's, it's just fun because like I, I always thought film is the art form of illusions, right? You know, it's like playing yeah. with your eyes, tricking you into believing things that aren't real. And this is just one of those things of like, yeah, I would have bet like, oh, yeah, they filmed in, you know, Arizona or New Mexico. It's like, nope, all the way over there. <laughs> nope. If you want to get that authentic American look, you have to go somewhere yeah. else. <laughs> well, it's just like that's that, that's also happened. I think uh, uh, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. That was filmed, you know, Spaghetti Westerns in Italy. Um, yeah, and, but that's the American South as well. So I just I just find this the filming locations uh, filling in for there's not there's nothing more American than Hollywood. There's nothing more Hollywood than fakery. You yeah. know, <laughs> uh, like if you yeah, it, it's amazing. Like if you go to uh, I, I was just in Vegas and I it's my opinion that Vegas is the greatest American city as in it is the most American city, <laughs> uh, yeah. because it is completely fake. Everything in it is a facade. Right. Everything is a represent is a representation of something else. There is no such thing as American culture. It is only repre- is only copies or facsimiles of other things, <laughs> and um, it, it really is amazing. Um, uh, and of course, it's a place where you you spend money uh, uh, recklessly. Yeah. Uh, so I love that. Another American idea. I love that. Not not New York. <laughs> not Washington D.C. If you want the true American experience, you go to Vegas and to Vegas. spend all of your money and get nothing. <laughs> That's the thing. Spend all your money. And get nothing back that's right right. you got it you really got it um okay we have one quote here uh that eli's brought and this one is from the trailer yeah for for context uh one of the more macabre jokes in the movie is well like uh jason schwartzman's the augie steenbeck's wife has died but he hasn't told his kids yet and it's kind of this it's it's pretty funny, but <laughs> but, but uh, yeah. After the kids find out, he he explains. You're saying her mother died three weeks ago. Let's say she's in heaven, which doesn't exist for me, of course. But you're Episcopalian. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I, what what exactly does this mean, Eli? Uh, there's a lot to unpack with that, man. I <laughs> it just I, I mean, for one, it's just a funny line. Like, hey, like I know for me it doesn't exist, so I find no comfort in it. But it might find comfort for you. And we could talk about how that goes back to like our discussions with you know art and artists um, believing in you know escapism. You know, it, I don't want to say religion is escapism, but it is uh, a cousin to it. Sort of this like. I believing in things that you don't like. It's 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 the answers to all the mysteries in the universe, yeah, right? Yeah. The this movie is also kind of about the unknown, right? And um, yeah, religion offers a solution to that problem. Yeah, because art is not logic, you know. And and there's the conversation with the art and the artist and believing in things that aren't real. But Wes Anderson's also exploring the sort of that theme with religion. You know, what can you believe in something yeah. you can't see? Can you believe in something um, that you can't prove? Yeah. Yeah, I think this is, I mean, it's this uh, very, it feels very appropriate for Augie because it's such an empty thing to say. Oh, yeah. He's like, well, let's say she's in heaven, which doesn't exist for me, of course. Like, 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 as if, like, he has to, he has to have that, like, little, um, you know, line in there. He has to make it clear that he thinks this is beneath him or or not worth it, you know, Um, which is, yeah, maybe that's a a clue to how he is, right? This kind of, uh, um, 
mean, he he doesn't believe in anything other than what he can see in front of him. Well, I I struggled I struggled to figure out exactly like what he was supposed to represent, right? Because he's a photographer inside of a play <laughs> inside of a like TV production, <laughs> right? So the so the pictures he's taking are in no way reflections of reality, um, right? But even then, he's sort of at distance from the rest of the world. But I don't know if I totally agree with that. He doesn't necessarily, he doesn't necessarily use the camera as a method of um, distancing himself. It's almost like a method of communication. And he's clearly not afraid to be in the thick of things, right? He, uh, he has shrapnel in the back of his head. Um, isn't it in the shape of an upside down question mark? Uh, that's yeah, what it I think looks so. like for me. Yeah, it, I don't. I don't know if that was. It's some funny. Exactly. It's some funny gag. <laughs> he's the only one that acts when the alien arrives, right? And he does probably the best thing that's possible, which is take a picture. Yeah. Of, you know, <laughs> like other than capturing the alien, which probably would have some sort of you know intergalactic consequences. Taking a picture of the alien is probably the best <laughs> option you have. And he was right there, ready to do that. You know, so it's not like he's. He's not like he's out of this world. It's not like he's you know not of the world, right? Um, but he doesn't seem to uh, he doesn't seem to understand or have much emotional range, right? And this line sort of emulates that too, where he's like not even able to empathize with his children about his their their mother's death. He's not even able to uh, uh, say with a straight face that she's in heaven. Well, yeah, because he can't take pictures of God, right? He can only mm. take pictures <laughs> of things that God's creation. Yeah, like so maybe there's something to dive into that, but I just think. Religion isn't really a topic that I think Wes Anderson has explored greatly. I think it's been yeah. uh, more the butt of the joke than <laughs> any sort of like, it's never been a central theme, but I think this is the closest he's gotten. And I think there's lots of, a lot of meat to chew on. Again, I don't think he is in any way like condemning religious practices or faith. And so I think he's actually exploring it in a way that makes sense for him um and i yeah well there's also the the um the children right the religious uh, school children right and at first it seems like the leader of the kids billy is kind of a bully but like uh it, i don't know there's a um there's a certain hopefulness to them and they, they like the ending where they're all dancing together is sort of this embrace of their kind of uh, idea without without uh you know shedding that religious um you know fixture that that's that's part of them either well, i mean i mean um, if you want religious yeah. imagery like the holy trinity three you know three daughters and everything three dots yeah, so three dots <laughs> three daughters uh yeah so again i was thinking more of the furies actually <laughs> <laughs> <Three daughters. laughs> okay um one last thing um and uh here uh eli must ask you to ask me a question uh, say, <laughs> oh now you're getting your own narrative <laughs> Joey, I think you know what time it is. It's time for us to go a little deeper. So a very popular thing online right now is this um, uh, copying of Wes Anderson's style and aesthetic uh, and making TikToks out of it. Um, there's actually one uh, filmed at Con with um, many of the actors from this movie, and they kind of jump on this idea. So Eli, what do you make of the current tiktok trend of emulating wes anderson style um and, and also like there's the uh the ai art uh, certainly is able to replicate his style so, so distinct have you seen those commercials for um or those trailers for uh star wars yeah but if it was wes anderson and, and many others yeah what do you make of that i think i think it's fun i think it's a celebration of you know his aesthetic but 
I think people are only appreciating Wes Anderson on a surface level with it. Um, I, I actually, uh, when you asked this question, I, I watched a YouTube video uh, from a channel called The Kino Corner called Is Asteroid City Wes Anderson's Best Film? And he talked about uh, AI in the in the video. And he said his biggest problem with it is that it's all surface level. You know, you have the symmetry. Soulless. Yeah, it's soulless. You have the symmetry. You have the, the quirky music and everything. But they're missing, like, what? because he said what, all these, like, AI-generated things, the titles are are like the fabulous adventures of the fellowship or something when, and he was like, Wes Anderson titles are about locations. You have asteroid city, <laughs> grand Budapest hotel, Isle of dogs, moonrise kingdom. These are actual places. Fantastic. Mr. Fox. Ignore that one. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but he's saying like a lot of it, like, like there's missing the point. It's just a simulacra rather than exploring the themes and everything. And these AI generated, like I think it's coming from a place of love, especially the TikToks. I I, I think they're pretty funny, uh, but they are surface level. You know, people think it's just like, oh, we have the we have the uh, you know the symmetry, we have the music, we have the you know the quirky gags. But there's so much more to Wes Anderson's work. Not because I, people don't do like the insert shots. They they try to do deadpan with delivery, but it's not the same kind of style that they they yeah. try to do color palettes but there's you know a method to the madness i think it just it all there's there's real intention behind yeah, it yeah and, I, and I think the intention like we've talked about they're like i mean we've been talking for like nearly an hour and a half about themes and everything but these like these tiktoks are just all about the aesthetic and i think that's a lot of what critics of wes anderson are missing where they just see the aesthetic and it's like no there's more going on here um you know Go ahead, yeah. have your fun or whatever, but just I feel like you're missing the point, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I agree with that, and I I think it is I think it is mostly harmless and it is fun and it is because he has he's so distinct and um I, I in that uh, New York article they said something about um just like the celebration of ordinary things and of ordinary routines, right? That's something that. Anderson is so well known for is like uh, categorizing and cataloging like a you know a backpack full of normal stuff yep. right <laughs> and it's like here's all the things that go into it right and it's so it's so fun to 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 do something like that um, and it is about like uh, although many of his movies like have some sort of um, you know extraordinary extraordinary event uh, many of the the ideas and people in it are very ordinary you know. And this is, uh, you know, you can replicate that in your own life because you're also ordinary. Yeah. <laughs> so you can find things that are around you and, and, and make that into something uh, fun. So, yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's kind of a, in a way, um, really adhering to what he's trying to celebrate, which is this idea of celebrating kind of the ordinary, um, you know, life yeah. and the, the, the ordinary routines. Yeah, I would like to go back. I I, I was glu- I was grouping these like TikToks and AIs together, um, and I was sounded kind of negative. I want to say the TikToks I think are great. Like they're <laughs> a lot of fun. The AI is kind of what I have issue with because that is yes. Like you want to talk about the most important line in this movie is you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. Th- th- it's like AI doesn't fall asleep. It's not us. It it can only like come up with. It can only pretend to know things, right? Right. It, well, it just it just remixes what's already out there. Yeah. Right. I, it's not going to come up with anything new. And yeah, I, it, it's you know it's it's easy to that's the thing. It's easy to replicate his style because it is so distinct, right? Which is why AI is good at doing that, and not other directors, right? But it's a um, 
it ultimately it doesn't mean anything if it's not done with you know purpose if there is no intention behind it right then it doesn't doesn't mean anything and it's not as if uh you know it's telling right it's like oh what if it was this movie that we recognize but in wes anderson's style it's like well yeah but that would never happen that's the thing right that's, that's what makes anderson so wonderful is that all of his movies are so like beautifully unique and uh, completely um you know disconnected from any other uh, f- uh cinematic trend right so um it's always going to be something new and something of uh, different. Yeah, it's almost like its own genre at this point, which is the most pretentious thing you could possibly say. But it is kind of well. You've done it. Yeah. You've done it. It's been an hour and a half. You said the most pretentious thing. But I think we can end this podcast. <laughs> but it is true. Like, it's, I, I, I'm not. I don't have an an eye or ear to like the indie filmmaking scene, but I'm sure lots of people are trying to do the symmetry thing, and I don't think they. It's probably not as successful because, like, like Wes Anderson doing all this for a point. Um, I'm, yeah. You know, we can only assume what that point is, but there's definitely a purpose behind it, and uh, it's because he has a story that he wants to tell. So, again, you know, TikToks and videos have as much fun. I think those are cute and kitschy and fun, but when you substitute, you know, try to try to think about the movies more than just an aesthetic, because that's why, like. Like I'm not saying you're you should like Wes Anderson movies, but a lot of the criticisms I see were. But you have to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Legally, you have to. Le- you don't understand that mistake in the movie. He put that there on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, no, I think even if you like you know, Wes Anderson movies, definitely think about them. Uh, don't just take them at face value because there's so much more going on underneath the you know the the colors and the symmetry and the deadpan. I couldn't agree with you more, Eli. Now we have reached the end of our episode, uh, and as always, we deliver our ratings. Um, Eli, what do you give uh, this uh, movie, Asteroid City? I award Asteroid City the beige asteroid of meta-narratives. Excellent. Excellent. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I award it the White Dwarf Award for Extreme Density. <laughs> Could you imagine being a kid and getting that award? <laughs> You're the most dense. <laughs> That's true. All right, Eli, um, where can people find you? Do you have anything to plug? Uh, yeah, so you can find me at Super Bracket Bros. I am one half of the, the brothers Super Bracket, the other with my co-host, Jay. Um, you can find us on any uh, platform you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Apple Music, all that jazz. You can find us on social media at Super Bracket Bros. Uh, specifically, you should follow the Instagram uh, because after we release our episodes on Sunday um, and on the days of release, you can actually vote on which character you think is going to win the fight. Uh, Super Bracket Bros is Benjamin and I have been on it many times. Um, it's a fictional uh, character matchup where they fight uh, to um, determine who's going to be the best. And every season, you guys come up with a list of fictional characters and have them uh, arranged in a tournament. And uh, have guests on to talk about who's going to win and and uh, just talk about how these characters, uh, what they mean to you. And it's always very, fun, very, very fun. You guys are on season five. Uh, this one is kaiju themed. I was on the episode with uh, Fury Bowser versus the Colossal Titan from Attack on Titan. And um, Benjamin was on to talk about Godzilla versus the Power Rangers. Yep. Um, so, um, of course... You know these uh, these matchups went very well uh, for our our chosen characters. Yeah. If, uh, if, if you're if you're, <laughs> if you're a fan of Super Smash Bros, we try to do that in the podcast format. It's a lot of fun. So yeah, give us a listen at Super Brack Bros on all your podcatchers and social media. Anything else you want to plug, Eli? 
I, I can't think of it. Nope, nope, I no, tried no, thinking no, of some witty. Too meta, Joey. Too meta. <laughs> <laughs> I'm broken, Eli. Uh, half my brain hurts. <laughs> <laughs> well, next movie we're going to do is also going to hurt your brain, which is going to be Inception, um, which I'm really excited to talk about with uh, Benjamin. <laughs> he gets back from his trip. Um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Affablechat.com is your new favorite website on the internet. There you can find the latest from us and all our social accounts, including our Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all of which are at AffableChat. And we even have an email address, uh, AffableChat at gmail.com. Um, if you like this episode, then film a uh, television program about it and then make a um, play about that and then make that into a movie. Um, and uh, during it, all you have to say over and over again uh, during the dream sequences, have you considered listening to Affable Chat? Have you considered listening to Affable Chat? Have you considered listening to Affable Chat? <laughs> um, that's all for us. Uh, thank you so much, Eli, for coming on to talk about this movie with me. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening.